Today we're going to talk about the role of the forests and gardens in human imagination and what they tell us about our human condition and Western civilization. My guest is Professor Robert Harrison. He is the uh, Pusena uh, Peritofi Atati, a professor of Italian literature at Stanford University, with broad knowledge and insight into world literature in general. In addition to being professor in Italian literature, he's also a scholar in literary and cultural criticism. Greek philosophy uh, is among the topics that he discusses. He's also host a radio program called Entitled Opinions at, on Stanford University Radio. Professor Harrison is the author of a trilogy of widely acclaimed books on Western civilizations and literature's relationship to the natural world, and they challenge us to reconsider our relationship with our environment and to guide us in a discovery into the human condition. These books are Dominion of the Dead, Forest, Shadow of Civilization, and most recently, Gardens, an essay on the human condition. Nice to have you with us today. It's a pleasure. Um, it, I, I don't know if you've ever heard this radio program or not, um, but if you haven't, um, I tend to give a relatively uh, in-depth uh, beginning questions and then look at this more like a classroom on the air. Mm -hmm. We have a chance without commercial interruption uh, to really lay out your thesis in depth, okay? Good. So I won't be interrupting you unless it's to probe in another area. Now, I've been very intrigued by a trilogy of books that you wrote, and you may have heard of a great French philosopher who passed away not too long ago, uh, Gaston uh, at the Sorbonne. And... For among many thoughtful, intellectual, spiritually oriented people, uh, he was rather uh, unique in his popularity. And although a philosopher of science, it was his philosophy of poetics that captured attention in other disciplines. And um, many people have said that you are uh, very much uh, joined in your philosophy to him. However, I would condition it by saying that that uh, he is also a deep cultural critic with a very definite green ecology position, and about uh, the thoughts on the conflicts between natural real life and virtual reality, such as the Internet and all the contraptions that provides us with our images. So this is what I'm going to get into. So here we go. Um, if you would please discuss forests and gardens individually and then perhaps explore the imaginal and symbolic relationship between the two as juxtaposition to Western culture's enthrallment with urban development. And a new movie has opened up with Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Kate Winslet that's all about the urban life of the 1950s and what it meant. And many of us grew up in that environment. Some of us have transcended the limitations of an urban and suburban environment and also gone rural. A whole together different perspective. Your thoughts, please. Well, if you, if if I understood you correctly, you'd like me to discuss uh, some of the theses I advance in my book, Gardens. First, is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a book that is the third in the trilogy that you alluded to. And um, after having dealt with forests first and uh, tried to come to terms with Western civilization's uh, 
relationship to this outlying fringe of darkness that was the forest, insofar as the West literally cleared its space from within the primeval forests and had for a very long time, up until our own time, uh, this, uh, this sort of boundary of um, sylvan uh, f forested outlying regions defining it. The, um, I then went on to deal with the dead. When it came time to tackle the theme of gardens, my question was, what is the human uh, responsibility towards the um, natural world, not in the sense of what we can do as ecological crusaders to uh, either save the planet or to reform our uh, sinful modes of life and uh, bring about uh, ways of living that are radically different than our, than our own, which I entirely agree are necessary, not just for the health of the planet, but insofar as it, they seem to promote greater human happiness than the modes of living that we're, uh, for the most part, tend to embrace, and that go back uh, in large part, as, as you were just mentioning, uh, to the kind of urbanization and suburbanization of the 50s and so forth. Uh, the garden is very, take, I take it very literally, as something that one cultivates within the soil. But it's also a figure for me for t the assuming of local responsibility uh, for the cultivation of uh, a, a green environment as well as certain social cultural virtues in the midst of what the Italian writer called the inferno in which we live. There's at least two ways that one can approach the, um, this um, urbanized, some would say infernal world that has been created over the last century or two, uh, and of which we are the... Um, in many ways, the victims, we suffer a number of pathologies that come from, from that urbanization. One way of dealing with it is to uh, become a revolu revolutionary, try to overthrow uh, the, the foundations of, of the whole system that brings about such a world. The other is to try to find what is not infernal in the midst of the inferno, give it room, allow it to grow, and cultivate little plots of sanity, healing, redemption in the midst of it. And that's what I think is an ethic that is uh, called for in our own time. It's not the only ethic, but it's the one that interests me the most in my work on gardens. Uh, one reason is because I don't believe that in my lifetime I will be able to um, be part of a larger, truly radical revolution that is going to overturn uh, the very foundations of Western civilization. And also because in the meantime, there actually is a great deal that one can do if one assumes a responsibility of this sort of local care um, in uh, one's relation to the earth, in one's relation to one's fellow human beings, in relation to one's community and friends and so forth. So
So I believe that through the figure of the garden, one can come to uh, articulate a certain ethic of responsibility that uh, is quite pertinent to the issues that you're raising. I appreciate that insight. Thank you. Um, would you take a look at the garden from the Christian uh, and Jewish heaven scenes? The, the, uh, in fact, in most of the world literature and most of the world religions, you have this ecstatic journeying, the pure lands of Buddhism, the gardens of celestial virgins in Islam, and throughout religions, uh, that are current or no longer exist, there has been this relationship between the garden and the afterlife. Why does the human imagination thrive on this imagery as it does appear to you to be, from my point of view, universal? I do believe, like you, that it is universal, and I believe that its universe, universality can be traced back to the fact that suffering is a universal human reality, that... Um, and insofar as human beings uh, throughout their history, millennia history, have been uh, sufferers who have been held bondage, in bondage to the land, in bondage uh, to their masters, and in bondage even to their ancestors. There's, um, but above all, in bondage to work. It's hard for some of us in our own time to realize what a holiday uh, meant for some of our forebears. I mean, those days in which one did not have to work, and what a state of blissfulness a uh, holiday represented. And that might explain in part this rather universal myth of a garden-like existence that either preceded the fall into our ordinary um, cursed humanity, or a kind of afterlife of rewards for what we're going through on earth in our own lives. Uh, a garden existence in which the fruits of the earth are made available to us spontaneously, without labor, uh, without um, the sweat and blood that Adam is required to give of himself after the fall, according to the Hebrew myth of the Garden of Eden and uh, where life is characterized by serenity, um, enjoyment, and, and basically a, a, a condition of, of um, uh, non-conflictual uh, relaxation. Now, the problem with that myth is not that it's fictitious, it's that if one looks closely into what is the very essence of our humanity, according to the archives and the oldest testaments that come down to us through literature and other sources, one finds that mm, there is an irrepressible vocation of care in the human which cannot find fulfillment in such an Edenic environment where human beings have all things provided for them and where their only obligation is to consume the fruits of the earth without labor and without cultivation and without having nourished those fruits through their own labor 
the result is a kind of sterility of spirit that might lead someone like Eve, our primal mother, to commit that primal act of transgression that freed us from the Garden of Eden and put us on an earth in which we could finally assume responsibilities for ourselves, uh, assume our mortality, and even our natality, to use a term of Hannah Arendt's, insofar as there is no natality in Eden. There might not be death, but there was no birth either. It's only once we get outside of Eden that Eve is able to become an earthly mother, as it were. And so by um, freeing ourselves from that environment, I think Eve puts us on the track of becoming human and being able to fulfill our potential through um, cultivation rather than consumption. I also believe that we live in an era today where the myth of Eden is not just an old story that uh, some of us read when we open the Hebrew Bible, but that it has a very active role in determining the um, shape and direction in which our society is uh, heading, and that we are trying to recreate, through, by any means necessary, a kind of Edenic condition on Earth, which we associate with a consumerist paradise, where, again, the fruits of the Earth will be rendered available to us without labor, without suffering, where perhaps we would even be able to arrive at a point where we can abolish mortality. Uh, if you listen to these so-called immortalists speak about how all we have to do now is live long enough, 30 or 40 years before even death can become an option rather than a necessity, if uh, some of these wild predictions are going to come true. The, um, the idea that Eden is something that we're trying, in some cases, successfully to recreate. Is I, I take it to be a horrifying misunderstanding of what is uh, um, the uh, the true sources of human happiness, which come from. Could you please speak up a little louder? Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, just so we can recapitulate here, you suggest that this view of a, a celestial garden and Eden, as it were, is contrary to much of the human condition, particularly the Not human... a celestial, I meant an earthly paradise rather than a celestial paradise. Oh, okay, all right, that's, that's where my confusion was. The next issue, I find your discussion about the garden school of Epicurus, one of the three main schools of philosophy in ancient Greece, the others being Plato and Aristotle, to be most valuable in awakening an ecological awareness that honors both the human uh, being and nature. Please share with us the real natural philosophy of Epicurus, also correcting the aberrations the word Epicurean has taken over the years. Well, that's a good question. You know, the word Epicurean uh, is associated nowadays with a, with a kind of behavior about eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It is true that Epicurus, unlike um, Plato and the Stoics and other Greek philosophies, did not believe in an afterlife. He did not believe 
that the gods were going to punish us for our sins. He did not believe that the gods had any interest in human affairs whatsoever. Uh, he believed that the human soul was composed of atoms, like everything else in the material universe, and that there was a certain finality about death. Um, he also found great consolation, or let's say liberation, from this doctrine, because he believed that many of the anxieties that human beings face um, regarding the afterlife come from a sense of apprehension of what is going to happen to me after death. And if you, are, if you became an Epicurean and accepted the fact that the soul was composed of material atoms and that it was going to uh, undo itself like all living things that undergo that process of dissolution, then it would put an end to your anxieties and you could focus on living this life uh, with an objective of maximizing the happiness for this life. Now, the happiness of this life did not consist of eating and drinking and being merry. That's almost a form of despair when you say, oh, there is no afterlife, therefore I have to gorge myself as much as I can now because I don't know what else to do. No, the sources of happiness for an Epicurean uh, were far more refined, and they were the product of a systematic cultivation of certain moral, ethical, uh, human virtues. And this is why I believe that it's so appropriate that Epicurus founded his school in a garden. That garden was literal. It was what we would today call a kitchen garden. The disciples uh, worked the soil and they actually fed off the fruits and vegetables that were grown in that garden. But by working the soil, they were also learning the lesson of nature, uh, of what it meant to cultivate something, uh, nourish its growth, and bring it to fruition. The virtues that were proposed by the Epicurean school were not uh, virtues that come naturally to human beings. For example, ataraxia, the great Epicurean word, which is translated usually as serenity, or uh, we could call it lack of perturb perturbation. It's not natural for human beings to be serene day in and day out. It's something that we have to work on. We have to cultivate the condition of serenity in ourselves. The primary Epicurean virtues were virtues like the friendship. Friendship is not something that is completely spontaneous. We have to work at becoming friends with each other. We have to cultivate in ourselves a number of qualities which will make me desirable to my friend, which will make me a good companion for my friend, above all, will make me a good conversationalist for my friend. Therefore, I have to cultivate the art of conversation. Epicurus believed that the greatest source of human happiness was good conversation. But of course, here too, good conversation for Epicurus entailed an exchange of ideas. If you're going to have an intelligent exchange of ideas, it means you're going to have to know something about the history of ideas, about philosophy, about literature, all things that required a certain kind of self-cultivation. So 
I believe that um, in the final analysis, to be an Epicurean meant um, not just to consume the fruits of the earth, but rather to systematically set out on a course of self-cultivation that would enhance the possibilities of human happiness and social relations. I hope that uh, answers your question. It more than answers it. Thank you. It dressed dressed it up and gave it a a different meaning. You're likely aware of the gradual growth of the movement today that would transform suburban yards into gardens with a utilitarian quality to grow food, like vegetables and fruits, like you were just suggesting. Of course, much of this is due to economic constraints and fear of future food shortages. But if you were the leader of this movement to transform manicured lawns into real gardens, what would you advise? I would advise the cultivation of uh, vegetables and green leafy things that can be consumed uh, not only for this, for the sake of, of food shortage, a serious consideration to be sure, but also because of one of these fundamental human needs, which is independent from our animal needs, like nutrition, which uh, is associated with our biophilia, uh, our, or our love of living things. I would even call it a chlorophilia. And I know that you are very sympathetic to the phenomenon of chlorophilia, but very few people want to acknowledge that when we are deprived of green, of uh, living plant life around us, we become very miserable and tend to attribute the, uh, you know, that discontent to other forms of clinical depression and so forth. And all it takes is to alter the environment, to render the environment green around us. And all of a sudden, a lot of our social kind of urban pathologies disappear in an instant. It's amazing what going into a garden or into a park will do for a state of mind. So yes, I think that uh, turning those yards into places where people actively participate in the cultivation of uh, comestible vegetables and fruits, uh, you know, would do wonders for altering the environment and and, and our state of minds as well. Hmm. Something a little more personal and uh, not at all esoteric. Uh, I'm filming right now throughout the United States. Today it's in Washington, D.C. Tomorrow it's in a uh, western state. Uh, I was out there just a couple weeks ago filming, and I decided to take a drive, the first one I have done in 20 years, from Denver to Boulder. And in my mind, I remembered all the beautiful things that journey held for me when I originally did it. In fact, I I did it by bike, and then I I went up into the mountains, which are right there. You're right at the Rockies. And... It was a wonderful journey, um, one that I used to take my bike every year. I'd go from Montana through um, Colorado to Utah and then up into Mexico and fly back. Well, when I drove through there just two weeks ago, I was just flabbergasted where there were beautiful uh, vistas, where there were uh, plateaus, where you could see the great uh, Rockies. Now you just have the blight of urban sprawl. And 
at no point did I see it being otherwise. So then I said, well, maybe maybe on the other side of Boulder. So I drove to the other side of Boulder, and Boulder's a very small town. Yeah. Yeah, the university is half the population of about 40,000. The other half is about 40,000 people. It's not that big, but it was absolutely congested. And where I had used to go for a run and up into the Rockies, it was built right up to it. And uh, and it had just this overwhelming sense of congestion that nature no longer had a chance to represent its true magnificent dynamic. Now, also recently, I was in Hawaii. And when I arrived in Hawaii, I the drive, which before had taken about 15 minutes, took 45 minutes, not in uh, drive time, not in traffic time. And instead of seeing the, the beauty of Hawaii, all I saw were houses upon houses upon houses. As I commented to the driver, this looks like Queens with a mountain behind it. And then I'm looking when I travel, and I travel a great deal, and I always make little time to go out and to see nature and to see what it looks like. And even in Sedona, Arizona, one of the most beautiful places in America, not now, way overdeveloped. Santa Fe, overdeveloped. Taos, New Mexico, overdeveloped. Uh, North Dallas, overdeveloped. So I'm seeing that the West, in, in the Western and American consciousness, the idea of forest doesn't mean what it used to. It means something to exploit. We might think of wilderness as, as a, the word to describe the wilds where the laws of nature rule supreme without human governance. And that is not true from my personal experience today. And I'm talking about very recently. And yet I believe that we all yearn for that true wild part of nature where we are humbled by its majestic omnipotence. And if you had to juxtapose the understanding and appreciation of the forest today with how it was viewed in ancient and medieval times, what would it be and what has been the civilizational consequences of that change? Well, Gary, I used to travel a lot and I don't travel nearly as much as I used to uh, and, and one of the reasons I don't is because of what you've described very eloquently and in, in a rather devastating way, namely the constant reminders one is exposed to in traveling that uh, not only in the western United States but almost everywhere on the planet there is, um, wherever human beings are able to do so, there is a, uh, a constant destruction of the landscape. Uh, rather than an enhancement of it, uh, or even leaving it alone. So uh, when it comes to forests, I don't know how to answer your question, because if you are assuming that until the um, phenomenon you're describing, we had a kind of reverence for forests, or that in the past there, there, was, there was a veneration of forests, the fact of the matter is that the American frontier expansion is a very sorry story from its uh, inception of terrible land management, horrible deforestation, and um, ecological um, uh, malpractice. The East Coast was deforested early, early on. I've just finished reviewing a book about the life of John Muir, and he saw um, uh, pra he, he saw deforestation taking place. 
here in California at, 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 at rates that, that just were uh, uh, shocking to him. And uh, fortunately, he and, and some of his colleagues took action, and they nationalized great tracts of land, which we, of which we are all the beneficiaries, you know, over 100 years later. Obviously, you were going to places where that was not the case, and, and I, have, I have no answer for how, what, what perversity there is in our species by which we continue to create environments that conspire against our well-being and conspire against the prospects of our happiness. Because if you asked almost everyone, they would like open vistas, they would like um, wild uh, uh, tracts of land left, left untouched, they would uh, like to put limits on growth. And the sprawl that you're describing does not promote the happiness of anyone, and yet it seems to be uh, ubiquitous. And I've come to the conclusion that we are a very bizarre and odd species that um, is actually terrified at the prospect of promoting our own happiness. I think this is part of what the resistance to Epicurus was all about in the ancient world, because he dared to, to uh, question whether we were actually making ourselves happy through our behavior or not. And um, I really think that it takes a certain kind of deep uh, psychology regarding um, perversity in order to account for what you've described. Uh, let me quote from your book. I believe people can benefit from this. The global problem of deforestation provokes unlikely reactions of concern these days among city dwellers, not only because of the enormity of the scale, but also because in the depths of cultural memory, forests remain the correlate of human transcendence. We call it the loss of nature, or the loss of wildlife habitat, or the loss of biodiversity. But underlying the ecological concern is perhaps a much deeper appreciation and apprehension about the disappearance of boundaries, without which the human abode loses its grounding. Somewhere we still sense, who knows for how much longer, that we make ourselves home only in our estrangement, or in the logos, by logos, her, uh, I believe you mean horizons of our senses, that allows our realm of logical reasoning of the finite, the outlaws, the heroes, the wonders, the lovers, the saints, the persecuted, the outcast, the bewildered, the, es the ecstatic. These are among those who have sought out the forced asylum in the history. Without such outside domains, there is no inside in which to dwell. Those who stay at home, who dwell strictly within the cleared space of the in institutional order, are left homeless without the containment of the province. End quote. Now, precisely because finite and finitude is given over to us in language, we lose the instinctive knowledge of dying. Nature knows how to die, but human beings know mostly how to kill as a way of failing to become their ecology.
In the final analysis, only this much seems certain, that when we do not speak out death to the world, we speak death to the world. And when we speak death to the world, the forest legends fall silent. Unquote. When you reflect on this wonderful, insightful statement, what is it about the wilds of nature that civil urban people most fear? I'm not sure they fear anything about nature anymore because we've, we've domesticated it to, a, to such a great extent. But what I, per, what I was suggesting is that perhaps what they fear the most about the loss of nature is precisely the loss of a boundary that would define the inside and distinguish an inside from an outside. And therefore, if you don't have a boundary within which you define your home or your community or your nation, then there's no way to, for uh, you to take root in that place. And homelessness becomes a general condition. And I, when I wrote Forests, I was, and I still am profoundly convinced, that if forests were to disappear from the Western Hemisphere, it would lead to a condition of massive uh, homelessness on the cultural level, precisely because what would disappear is not only a uh, uh, biosystems, but these ancient um, reserves of cultural memory. There is so much cultural memory associated with forests. I go back to the old, the oldest myths and legends and folklore and religious traditions. That um, what we would be doing is wiping out entire recesses of our collective cultural uh, memory. And to live without such connections with the past. And those connections with the past are in the land. They're in the landscape. They are more in nature than they are in our minds. Uh, to lose them is really to render our world monodimensional and in a certain sense, virtual. Uh, and I think this is one of the fears that a number of first world urban dwellers have when they are contemplating um, the ecological dilemma that we live with today. Hmm. Thank you. I appreciate that answer. I only have but two more questions. Today, there are people who are more than willing to take all the force of the world whether it be the Amazon that I've been reporting on, its depletion, or the uh, Nepali foothills, the American West that I discussed recently, and simply developing it, tarred up for profit and gain. And for these individuals, the forest doesn't symbolize anything that you and I and many people in this audience would say is sacred. And yet, I can't tell you how many times in the utter hypocrisy of our society, I have gone to benefits where the people who are writing out some symbolic check to support a particular part of, you know, going green or save the forest are the very people who are the captains of the industry that have most exploited this. 
it would be as if a doctor hit you in a hit and run and then came back and wiped your forehead to say, how are you doing? Uh, and then went on to hit someone else. And when I look at these, I just refuse to go anymore. The last one I went to recently, there were some people there, and I know the industries they run, and the industries exploit the environment. And I said to the organizer, I'm sorry, but uh, it's not your fault, but I'm going to make my presentation, and then I'm going to leave because I'm not going to do anything or say anything that would embarrass anyone. That would be inappropriate. It's your party. Uh, but just so you know, the three people who are being honored, their industries are the primary exploiters and deforesters. They're, they have terrible uh, track records, and yet because they threw th throw some money into a charity, suddenly everybody falls all over themselves to honor them. It's like honoring Henry Kravitz, the uh, corporate, uh, you know, uh, corporate raider uh, for being a humanitarian. Well, not to the people who lost their jobs in the companies that uh, he took over. And uh, so that's one issue I would like to address, that we seem to be extremely hypocritical between saying we, we want force, we want nature, we want purity, we want the waterfalls and the lake, and we want the animals. And we turn right around and we'll eat beef from the Amazon. And if we didn't eat beef, they wouldn't be sowing the soybeans or raising the cattle that would destroy it. So can we get beyond what I call the Al Gore shuffle? If you're going to get a Nobel Prize and if you're going to be making statements important to us, and indeed they are important, then for God's sake become a vegan because we have 8 billion cattle in the United States that are being grazed on, on land that causes massive pollution more so than humans do. And wouldn't it be nice if you didn't go someplace on a private jet? Wouldn't it be nice if your home was actually solar wind powered? Can we at any point in our society become less hypocritical and more authentic and actually contribute to that love of that mystical, wonderful paradise we call nature? Your thoughts, please. Well, I'm sorry to hear that you're not going to those functions anymore, Gary, because I sit here in my you know, little outpost at Stanford University. I write about these things, and I continue to hope that there are heroes like you who go to the front lines and actually um, denounce the hypocrites and, uh, you know, keep everyone else honest. And if you're abdicating, you know, that going to that, then, then I, I start getting demoralized indeed. But let me say this about um, our hypocrisy. I think that there are two almost ineradicable vices uh, of in Western civilization, and certainly in the modern period, that I don't know how to deal with because they seem so deeply rooted that um, uh, it seems impossible to do anything about them. And I believe that they are greed and self-deception. And I think that the way in which one serves the interests of the other and vice versa is so uh, insidious that we have a hard time, we'll have a hard time ever uh, disentangling the story and being truthful and honest about how we go about deceiving ourselves, uh, about promoting the interests of our greed under the mask of doing good works, uh, whether it comes to charitable works or, uh, you know, environmental works and so forth. And I believe that a, a great many of our 
uh, fellow citizens, and I'm not excluding myself from this by any means. I'm sure that I live in a similar state of self-deception to a certain extent, that we believe that we're on the side of the angels, and, uh, and yet <clears throat> every first world citizen, insofar as he or she has an average life, uh, you know, lifestyle, is a huge consumer of the Earth's resources, uh, much more than many other of our third world counterparts. And that happens to be a reality. Hypocrisy is particularly aggravated in America, I think, and there's, I couldn't agree with you more that the, uh, the people who write checks for environmental causes are more often than not uh, the worst perpetrators of environmental crimes. Uh, at a more metaphysical level, I believe that we have um, not only entered the era that Paul Crutzen calls Anthropocene geological era where uh, human caused human factors have contributed to a uh, change in, in the geological climate and so forth, but that um, alongside this anthropogene, yeah, well, within this new geological era, we human beings uh, are all living with a kind, what I would call a species guilt. And by that I mean that our debt towards the natural world has become so great, and it's an outstanding debt that we're not paying off but only adding to year in and year out. If you think of the daily holocausts of meat, fish, and poultry, that take place in order to provide the feasts that we gorge ourselves on week in and week out. You can get a fair sense of what this debt is all about, to say nothing about the consumption of natural resources, fossil fuel, and things. So species guilt is a reality, and I think that if we're going to think seriously about overcoming the hypocritical measures, which do nothing to advance our cause, we're going to have to think of what it would mean to undergo a kind of species repentance or penance or something along those lines. And I don't know, I don't have any concrete proposals in that regard. I, uh, I appreciate those insights. What I do is instead of now going to those benefits, I will do a paper, I will do a broadcast, I will do for those minds open enough to hear a message that may be contrary to the prevailing message. Yeah. In measured words, I sent Al Gore a 200-page um, essay on what it means to be more comprehensive, almost Gaian, in appreciating the environment, not just uh, coming from that monotheistic philosophy of one attribute. Uh, we have right. many tipping points. Why not look at all of them so that when you're addressing an issue, even in small measure, you can address all of it. And I believe that in that measured way, there may be people just like with Obama. I've sent Obama many, many positive messages, but the positive messages 
are meant for him or his staff, I'm sure he doesn't read them, to at least encourage them to remember that there are those of, of us out here who believe in progressive causes but tried the best we can to share positive insights so they can continue to make the right moves. Obama has the power right now to undo a lot of the damage done by the Bush administration, especially with this stripping of mines and, and the beautiful uh, environment in Tennessee, Kentucky, and West Virginia. What yeah. there is left of it, he could undo that. Uh, he could undo what Clinton and Gore did on opening the great uh, final uh, hardwood forest for ex, uh, for exploitation. He could stop that. He could make an enormous difference, but only if we remind him that he didn't win because of the major media. Let's be very clear on this. Obama didn't win because of CNN and MSNBC and Keith Oberman or others. Obama won because more than any time in American or world history, a groundswell of those people who are invisible the students, the middle class, the activists, those who have been disenfranchised or never given a place at the table, use the Internet. It was the largest Internet campaign message sharing, and it bypassed the media. It was under everyone's radar. That is something that has not been acknowledged. And shame on the people around Obama for not acknowledging that the only reason, the only reason he is elected, 100 percent unequivocally, the only reason he stands there is because of the enormous trust that the people who have been disempowered and wanted a voice gave him. It was not the major media. And similarly, when we forget about what really is important, let us not forget that if he does the right thing and let us hope and pray he does, then he will reclaim for America that part of America that still remains and try to recover and heal that which has been abused and scarred by democratic and regimes for the last 40 years. Your final thoughts, please. Well, I, my final thoughts are, are in conjunction with yours. I, I, I think part of his challenge is going to be um, to remind the American people that our relationship to the natural world is one of an aggravated debt as much, if not more, than any of this economic debt that everyone is completely obsessed by and which he is giving uh, complete priority to with a trillion dollar uh, kind of stimulus package and so forth. The and debt is something that I think has to be addressed comprehensively by the Obama administration, economically, morally, and perhaps even metaphysically. What does it mean for us as a people? to uh, continue to be in a relationship to our consumption, uh, which where we're always taking away more than we're giving back to the earth. And the one lesson that comes from gardening that I try to put forward in my book, and I'm inspired here by the Czech author Karl Čapek, where he says one must always give the soil more than one takes away from it as a gardener. And I think that this has to become the foundation for our, uh, uh, for our, our behavior and our, our new ethics in all spheres, uh, to learn to give back more than one takes away. And um, maybe that's a message that... 
Well, that well, that's I a like message uh, that goes back to St. Bernardine and even Francis of Assisi and, and Maimonides, uh, Eurydicles, and Sophocles. They all share yeah. that same in concept. Give to others. Be in service. Think of yeah. others' needs, not just your own. Thank you. I really thank you for being on. Hopefully people will read Gardens, an essay on the human condition. All the best to you in all of your efforts. Thank you very much. My guest, Professor Robert Harrison, is the Rosina Perotti Professor of Italian Literature at Stanford University, and he is also a, a, a scholar in literary and cultural criticism and Greek philosophy. I'm Gary Nall, back in a moment. <laughs> 